welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. In my book, if you're a Black Indigenous a person of color, and especially if you're a Black femme, a Black trans femme, just existing in the world and being like living your life unapologetically, claiming that joy, claiming that rest, thriving, that is the revolt right there. Um, that is the revolt because the system would have you believe that we don't deserve to have that. So I don't think that a birth worker needs to do more than support people to have autonomous, safe, consensual births. I don't think that a new parent needs to do more than take care of themselves, rest, be grounded and present for their children. I think that that's plenty. Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying threads from one episode to the next. Like... If the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. At the table with me today are beautiful souls who I cannot wait for you to meet. Here they are. My name is Chelsea Lutsenko, and I live in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. I work part-time as an administrator for a family doctor team, but at the moment I am pretty much a full-time doula. I'm also a co-founder and chairperson of the Doula Support Foundation. I have an amazing partner and I have two wonderful kiddos, five and three. I am white and my pronouns are she, her, they. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts, uh, which was wicked fun at the time, but slightly less useful in the real world. I fell into doula work after my kiddos were born and have pretty much found my my life's passionate work. I'm a former missionary kid in TCK, although I define my current spirituality as someone with faith, but no religion. If I was able to clone myself, uh, my second self would be an art therapist. Hi, I'm Ajira, pronouns she, they, currently residing on unceded Ohlone territory, uh, aka Oakland, California. I am a fat black queer mama to two glorious beings and lover of all things birth and creation, really, I guess. I'm a full-spectrum community birth worker. Um, I have my own practice, and I also am very active in the Roots of Labor Birth Collective, supporting folks through every reproductive milestone, as well as being a photographer and a branding strategist. (laughs) Connection and community are vital to me, and life has been my greatest, most expectant, and most relentless teacher. Um followed closely by my children. I think life, death, and transition are sacred. I believe in embodied spirit. To quote Octavia E. Butler, (laughs) God is change. Um, I want my life to be an intentional, conscious response to that change, my words to be a prayer, and this whole world that we share to be our house of worship. Um, In case it wasn't clear, I don't have a religion. (laughs) I like to pick and choose the bits that make sense to me and leave the rest. Uh, If I could clone myself, my clone would be doing whatever the hell they wanted, because I believe in autonomy always. And I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth-generation California farmer farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and father to two awesome kids, identify as a white male, and I'm loving my 30s. Formerly, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. 
identify as a follower of Jesus and find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. Awesome, guys. Well, welcome to the podcast. I am so stoked to have this conversation with you two in particular. I'm excited nervous to be here. <laughs> My 11-year-old calls that nervous-sighted. Um, nervous-sighted. I like that. Nervous-sighted. Yeah. <laughs> As we get into it, can you share just a little bit, each of you, um, in whatever order you want, what was your path that led you to birth work? Oh, Chelsea, you want to go first? Cause All right, I'll go first. Okay, I've go. answered this question many times. Okay. Um, so I didn't become a doula until after both of my kiddos were born, but I, and I didn't even know what a doula was, frankly. Did you have one at your birth? I had an accidental one. So I had my mom, mm. but she wasn't just a mom. So she is a labor and delivery nurse, and mm. she's essentially been practicing as a doula overseas for like 30 years at this point. Mm. Um, so instead of just being a mom, like she was my fount of education and, you know, reassurance and kind of knew how to do things au naturel. So when I came out of my birth experiences, even though they were not perfect and they were not like peaceful home birth water things, I was so proud and so empowered by the way that I gave birth. And I, kind of told everyone with ears my entire birth story, like from start to finish, all of the nitty gritty details, I would tell them everything. Love it. And yeah. <laughs> and then when my friends and my cousins and everyone started to have their babies, um, I would ask them about their birth stories and they wouldn't really want to talk about them too much. And they didn't find power in that experience. They found um, some of them found trauma. Some of them found um, weakness, a little bit of shame. Like it was just all of these emotions that have never been equated to my birth story. So from that, one of my cousins did have a doula. And I was like, what is this doula thing? So I looked into it. And pretty much from the second that I read what a doula was, it was something that I wanted to be um, at the beginning, just to kind of help the, the people in my life that were pregnant to help them kind of feel awesome about and confident about um, giving birth. And then it kind of expanded into a full career and foundation and everything else like that. But essentially, it's, I just want to make people proud and um, yeah, proud and excited about the way that they give birth, whatever, whatever that way is. Every time I get this question, I answer it so differently, I think. But essentially, I think I've always been a doula. I mean, I don't love the word doula because it means slave in Greek and I'm comfortable, uncomfortable. True, true. But um, I'm uncomfortable calling myself that. But at the same time, it's it's like a shame because it's finally becoming a word that is you know, known in the general population. And so for us to suddenly be like, no, we want to call it something else could be counterproductive. So anyway, that's an aside. Um, I think I've always been doing this work. I've always been the person who is like in my friend group and my family who's obsessed with 
how things work with, you know, milestones and transitions and how we can support each other to get through them. And I think that, you know, there's so much, so much that is sacred about transitions, about that, that engagement with source, you know, to kind of, um, in my view, it's almost like the universe is asking you who you are, who you want to be, you know, and that response is always so interesting because it could be anything. Um, it seems like most of the time, but, um, I would say that my first, um, birth support client was my mother when she had my sister. I was three at the time and I knew that the first thing I needed to do was to get her some tea, which I did. And, um, and so, you know, that's where I started. And like, <laughs> my mom still hasn't paid me for that one, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, nobody's going to go to an African mom and be like, so you owe me. <laughs> I brought you tea, okay? Because <laughs> my mom will not hesitate to like try tally up all the cost of raising me, you know, and be like, mm, I think I'm winning still. So I'm still ahead. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so you know, that just continued in my life. I was the person in my friend group who answered all the questions about you know periods, about sex, about abortions, about you know how do you know when or if or whatever mm -hmm. and the obsession with birth and everything related to it you know on either side of it just continued and deepened and deepened and deepened and then my own birth experiences definitely had an impact on the way that I wanted to see people supported and I would say that initially I was very focused on um, postpartum and breastfeeding and you know a lot of it because most of my friends um, when I moved to the U.S. were in other places. So it was a lot of like virtual support for things. But mm -hmm. as I began to, you know, connect with people here, I had a small baby and I knew I wasn't going to take them into the hospital. So I just focused on postpartum support and breastfeeding and breast, you know, chest feeding and uh, breast milk sharing and all of that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. then... Um, yeah, when I started taking like in-person births again, it was, it's, it's really for me always about supporting folks to have their own experience. So mm -hmm. I know that a lot of people have this idea that, you know, a doula is going to make you have a natural birth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there might be that kind of doula out there, but, <laughs> but for me, I'm not at all attached to how you give birth at all. I'm not attached to what your birth should look like. I know what I would like, but I also know that that's what I would like. And I'm not out here trying to make anybody else have my ideal birth. I'm trying to support folks to have their own experience and to really respect um, their autonomy, you know, respect um, their wisdom and their intuition and their ability to choose what's best for themselves and their families. What was that wisdom that shaped you? And it sounds like, Ajira, for you, it was this really embodied experience with your own mother, right? And getting her tea and the wisdom of just sensing the energy in that room and the needs there 
like settled deeply into your your being and and helped shape who you are which is beautiful um i also think that it's it's really amusing to me now to think back on my life and how much of my youth was spent trying to really distinguish myself from my parents you know trying to like really be clear about like i'm not i'm not you know i'm not you i'm not unduly influenced by you and then to come out the other side and be like actually you are my inspiration in my whole world <laughs> i take it back that is I the story back. of growing up right <laughs> it really nice. is yeah <laughs> Yeah, that's a beautiful. Yeah, I, there was something. Gosh, I'm gonna get it wrong, but it was something like that. It was like the the process of growing up is like, you know, first learning how to forgive yourself, and then learning how to forgive your parents, and then learning how to love yourself, and then learning how to love your parents, or something like that. Whereas, like, yeah, there's this intrinsic part about like coming to terms with our own upbringing. Um, that's deep, right? It's it's powerful. Um, but that, yeah. I think also just the piece around like, it's so easy when you're younger to blame your parents for so many things, right? What's that great poem? Um, oh, I'm not. Philip Larkin's poem. I think it's called This Be the Verse. But the poem, um, the line in the poem that, <laughs> that really sticks with me is, they fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. And I love that 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 sentence is always just wrong so true for me because i think that there is that feeling at least it's like a big overriding feeling of that part of your life is that you know your parents are like stopping you they're not <laughs> they don't they're not hmm. completely on board with all of your wild ideas and they have their own experiences that they're processing and all this sort of stuff but in the moment you're not like you don't even think of them or i didn't even think of them really as people in their own right you know what I mean like I remember a moment in my teens when I looked at my mom and I was like oh my god you had like a whole life before I even existed <laughs> <laughs> like this part with me is not the whole story you know this part with me is not the whole story and I think that there's something really beautiful and profound about that because it does you know kind of widen or illuminate that separation between you and your parents but it's also really beautiful because it means that I can I can look at my parents and I can forgive I can forgive their mistakes because I can mm. see them as more than my parents. You know, I can see them in their entirety as human beings who as are humans, yeah. Who are trying their best, who are doing the best yeah. they can with what they have, who are, you know, processing trauma and coping with being alive and dealing with the weight and responsibility of being parents and, you know, working people and all of those things. Yeah, I don't know. Say something, Chelsea. I've been talking for a while. <laughs> I know. I'm just sitting here listening to you talk. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, I kind of feel the same way in terms of why being a doula is such a good fit for me. I didn't necessarily realize it, but as I've become a doula and as I've kind of learned more things and brought in my mind and things like that, I've realized that there's a lot in my life that has kind of led me to this specific set of skills that make me a good doula. So one of them is that I am, I am really hard of hearing, really hard of hearing. I, uh, 
got my hearing tested a couple of weeks ago just to get a new baseline. And I am moderately to severe on my hearing loss. But what that has done, because I've had it all my life, what it has done is I've basically, I'm really good at picking up on nonverbal clues. So I don't, you don't have to say anything to me. I can usually tell kind of how you're feeling and what you're feeling emotionally, because that kind of informs your speech and your language. So I had that. So I have really good instincts around that. When people can't talk in labor, I can usually tell what they actually want. Um, and then in, I went to art school for my undergrad. And one of the first things that they teach you, like artist 101, is that you, you don't have to like the art that you see. You don't have to agree with the art that you see, but you must consider it. So that kind of mantra has actually built kind of my thought process for the rest of my life. Like, I don't have to agree with you. I don't have to like what you're saying, but I do have to stop and listen to it and actually consider and see if there's any truth in there, if there's a starting place for us. And it's, you know, it's really made my ability to relate to people much stronger because I can pause and take that moment to actually see things from their perspective. Okay, can I just hijack this conversation? I want to get back to doula work, but what you just said, Chelsea, mm -hmm. makes me want to go in a different direction for maybe a short while or maybe a long while. Okay. Because I love what you said about like, you don't have to like it, you don't have to agree with it, but you need to consider it. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful wisdom. And right now, at least in North America, and I think globally, there's a social uprising of people finally maybe being heard with what they've been saying for decades and decades and decades. Mm -hmm. And then this whole other contingent of people who are like, I don't like it and I'm not going to consider it. Yeah. So how are you guys? So, and you guys are in di very different places, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, Eastern Canada and the Bay area of California are pretty different places. <laughs> so I just want a little snapshot, like how are you guys interacting with this social uprising that's happening? I think, I think the biggest thing that I had to learn and that my area of the country had to learn is that it's really easy to, as Canadians, to just be like, well, we're not as bad as the States. So we're okay. Like we're better. We, you know, the States has to learn some stuff. Canada, we're doing much better. And I think the biggest learning curve for Canadians is realizing that we are not better. We might not have the, like in terms of birth outcomes, Ajira, when you were talking on your um, podcast and things like that, we really don't have that body of research um, in Canadian hospitals that you do in the U.S. But in every other trend, we were pretty much on par with you guys. Um, our racism might look a little bit different. It might look like more of a sorry, smile, very polite kind of racism, but it's still there. And I think our biggest challenge is learning to recognize it and recognize what it looks like here as opposed to what it looks like down there in the States. Um, and also part of the conversation that we've been having for, you know, relatively recently, but for the last 15, 20 years um, is kind of, our institutional racism around uh, First Nations and our Aboriginal communities. Um, yeah, that's a major black mark on Canada, and it is not better than it was last year. <laughs> 
So yeah, I think, I think in terms of Canada, what we're, what we're trying to struggle with is to get off our high horse in terms of relationship to you guys and own, own our own systemic racism and our own way of, of doling that out. I'm <clears throat> God. <laughs> I thought I was really ready and then I wasn't. Um, oh. I wanted to say that um, I appreciate the, the turn, the turn. Um, and there was also something um, Chelsea said earlier that I wanted to come back to as well, but that um, I think it was the comment you made around being able to hear some, hear people, even when you don't agree with them or, don't relate to their experience, but I can't remember what it was. It was very, it was very interesting. Obviously, since I had to bring it up that I wasn't going to tell you what it was, but, um, <laughs> um, as far as like what's happening right now, I think it's really interesting that people, um, that so many people in different places still want to do that thing of like, we're not as bad as them. <laughs> like we're not perfect, but we're not as bad as them as though, um, you know, what's happening in the U.S. is is exceptional, but it it kind of isn't. Um, you know, in all of the world, this is what it is, right? That that the 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 period of history that set this whole thing in motion was one that affected the entire globe. You know, the roots of it are deep and they are established in so many different ways and so many of the assumptions that we make about where where the starting point for anything is right and so it, it's it's not something that can be fixed by white people deciding to be like yeah you know what you're right <laughs> racism is a thing <laughs> like that's not enough um and it's not even enough for people to say black lives matter and i mean in a way it's kind of it's kind of jarring and annoying to hear just because I know that, like, I know Black Lives Matter. And if, if you had to hear somebody saying Black Lives Matter for it to occur to you that Black Lives Mattered, then you might be too far gone, friend. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what else to tell you. Like, this should not be news or a revelation to you. Um, obviously, I understand what the actual goal of the organization and the movement is and I'm not saying that that's not needed because one of the ways that this current state of things has really helped me um, get grounded in is the idea that we all play very different roles in the struggle for the same thing and I think that for a long time you know part of the um, part of the way that the system kept things in place, kept the status quo as it was, was through this lie that we, the oppressed, had to pick one thing to focus on in order to exact change, right? Like we couldn't talk about transphobia and homophobia and racism and sexism and classism and ableism. We couldn't talk about all of those things at the same time. We had to pick one. And then once we had that right, we could, you know, go back to the drawing room table and and pick another thing to focus on. Right. And there was definitely this energy of like, whoa, 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 you're just bringing too much, you know, pick one thing. We'll talk about it. We'll see if we think it's real. And honestly, I'm really of the mind of like, I'm not trying to get a seat at the table that my oppressors are eating at, you know, I'm building my own table. 
Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm building my own table and inviting the people I want there. And everybody else can suck it, honestly. So (laughs) I um, love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't I don't need your table. I don't I'm not trying to build a chair that's going to fit at it. I'm not trying to eat whatever unseasoned food you're about to eat. I don't want it. I'm making my own table. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's going to be lots of nyamachoma there. Believe it. Um, mm-hmm. if you don't know what nyamachoma is, I'm so sorry. Please make your way to East Africa. Educate yourself. And figure it out. Because <laughs> something is missing in your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm really, really, um, appreciating that there are so many different ways to engage with this. I'm really, really appreciating the voices of so many young people who are stepping into this and just fearlessly, boldfully, boldfully, boldly, (laughs) um, you know, claiming the space for themselves. Um, But I also was supporting a lot of birth workers, a lot of new parents as well, who had so many feelings come up about, you know, I should be at the protest. I should be at the, you know, at the front lines. I should be, I should be, I should be. And to them, I keep saying, and to myself, I keep saying that we all show up for the struggle in our own ways. And honestly, in my book, if you're a Black Indigenous, a person of color, and especially if you're a Black femme, a Black trans femme, just existing in the world and being like living your life unapologetically, claiming that joy, claiming that rest, thriving, that is the revolt right there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That is the revolt because the system would have you believe that we don't deserve to have that. So I don't think that a birth worker needs to do more than support people to have autonomous, safe, consensual births. I don't think that a new parent needs to do more than take care of themselves, rest, be grounded and present for their children. I think that that's plenty. Um, and honestly, I also have a little bit of irritation about the fact that, you know, The average, you know, in the United States is that black birthing people are four times more likely to die in birth Mm. than white birthing people. And the fact that that happens all the time and has been happening for like at least the last decade that we have data on, if not, you know, definitely, definitely, you know, more so since the beginning of this entire empire, if like... The fact that that doesn't outrage people enough to, you know, burn shit down in the streets. I don't, it, it's a little, it can be a little demotivating, but, but also whatever gets people out, whatever gets people moving, whatever gets people taking action to reclaim whatever power they have in their lives and to, you know, make whatever change and I saw this great TikTok. I can't remember from, I know I'm on TikTok. I'm an old person and I'm on TikTok, but I don't care. <laughs> I have a good time on it. Um, but there was this young um, performer on there who did this really great uh, piece where he was talking about um, how like in the US people are so distracted by the whole like president conversation, right? That That most folks don't think about or show up for. The smaller elections, which in some ways can have even bigger impacts, right? Of the council, city council and the, you know, state governorship and the, it's like there's so many pieces before you get to that figurehead. And we've been so distracted by the figurehead that we haven't paid attention to the rest. 
Yeah, I think that's part of the American mythology of power centers, right? Which is kind of what got us into this whole mess, right? Like everything about the American mythos puts more and more attention to higher and higher structures of power because we're just obsessed with it. We, you know, that's the whole point of American exceptionalism. Of course, the things we're exceptional for right now are not very great things. <laughs> um, yeah, there is this huge mythos around those power structures that like the things that actually make change, the city council, the state legislatures, we overlook because they're quote unquote, not powerful enough somehow, even though they're the ones actually making the change. Cause we've put so much mythology around what it means to be president. Uh, I mean, if, you know, just look at half of our movies from the 1990s onward. And then, you know, we could go further back than that too, but Harrison yeah, Ford, <laughs> best president. So my favorite president movies, actually. Yeah, Air Force One. Is Air Force One. And then yeah. wasn't there another one where like they had a summer house on the lake or something, and he had to rescue oh, his wife? What, what was that? One yes, called? that was a Tom Clancy book Who that they made. What was that? Have one? a summer house by the lake. Right. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, Chelsea does. So I you borrow know. a summer house by the lake. <laughs> oh, my God. I need to move to Canada immediately. <laughs> we have a I'm lot assuming, of lakes. I'm assuming you get one when you arrive. <laughs> and that's our show. Thank you so much for joining in this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community. And engage us on Instagram at of dust and divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. I think often unconsciously, sometimes folks want to give birth in the hospital because they want to be able to put that on the doctor to just say like, you know, here, you're responsible for the outcome now. Um, and I was just thinking about this because another doula friend and I were talking about how sometimes there are things that if they happen in a home birth, um, people, and by people I, I mean like, you know, um, even folks like peer reviewing studies, right, will sometimes have this thought that like, oh, if they'd been in the hospital, the outcome would have been different. And yet, and yet when the outcome is the same at the hospital, nobody thinks like, oh, if they'd been in a home birth, it would have been different. They, they, they kind of are more willing to be like, well, that's just how it is. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything Live the questions now.